Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of the BTD Podcast. My name is Joseph, your host for today. With me is my lovely guest co-host, Tanush. Hello, everyone. And uh, we have five very special guests with us today. I'll allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, sure. Hi, I'm Jason. Hey, guys. I'm Julian. Hey, all. I'm Jin. Hey, guys. I'm Kevin. Hi, I'm Crystal. And they were all at the McGill High School's debate tournament over the past weekend. Uh, they all made it into the finals, and they all did an excellent job. And uh, we are here to talk about the tournament, talk about them, and hopefully get to know everyone here a little bit better. So, uh, first off, um, I think even though I, or like other people here, might know a little bit about you guys uh, already, I want to just kind of hear about your debate story, how you got started, how long you've been debating, and uh, maybe who have been the most important people to your debating career. Um, anyone want to start us off? Um, I can start. So in terms of how long I've been debating, uh, I started I, I started debating competitively, like near the beginning of grade eight. So this is, I think, my fourth year debating competitively. Um, I started mostly because I just got forced into it. But I, like after my first in-person tournament, I realized it was actually something that was like kind of fun. Probably the most important person in like my debating career is like Rudy. He doesn't coach me anymore, but he coached me for a long time uh, during the pandemic. And I think he was really like influential because like I feel like he's like a really he's the reason why there's I have such a strong base and like the basics, I guess, of debate. Uh, I can go next. So I've been debating for about two years now. I think I started about summer of 2020. And uh, it's kind of funny because um, I've been friends with Jason like ever since we got to UTS. And uh, he's been debating since, I think, grade seven. And uh, I think it's in the summer of 2020. It was in the pandemic. I kind of had nothing to do. And there was a bunch of people from our school that were running a uh, debate camp during that summer. Just like a two-week-long camp. Seminar is really, really simple, like three-minute speaking times. Uh, you just get to know the basis of the debate. So I went to that. And I think in the following uh, September, I tried out for the school speech and debate team. So I guess that's how I started. Um, this is funny. My first tournament was actually the uh, EC Junior Tournament in 2020 that I went to with Jason. Uh, big mess that tournament, but you know we move on. And um, as for most important people in my debating journey, I think I'd also have to say Rudy. He was my first like real coach at Olympiads, and um, he actually kind of like he took a risk on me, right? So I never went to any institution coaching um, before Olympiads, and usually if you like have never started before, they put you in like level one and you go to the top. But I think Rudy. Um, he, he allowed me to start in level four, so he took a pretty big risk on me. And then um, I think I stayed there because I fit like decently well into the class. And yeah, so I think Rudy was probably the best coach I had. Super solid guy. Yeah, so my story about how I got started at debate is a bit stranger. Um, I guess you can call me a dino. I've been debating for around six years now. Um, and I began in a, I began d learning debate in grade five and then only started doing it competitively in grade six to seven. Um, so actually, I, I have quite a bit of experience. I think I'm one of the few people still in the high school circuit that did in-person debate before COVID, which is a bit uh, like a bit sad for me, but yeah. Um, so the most important person in my debate career and the, and where I got started was my mom found out about debate and she thought it was a cool opportunity. So for a while it was like 
I had a love and hate relationship with debate where she would force me to go to Olympiads classes and do debate there. And I just really didn't like it. But I think I did it so much that uh, I did it so much that I just started to hate it. I started to actually like it from the hate that I gave towards it. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, some of the most important people in my debating career, obviously my mom, she was the first person to like, she went through the whole TDA debate guide and taught me all the different aspects of it. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I got started with debating. Your mom taught you debate? Yeah, uh, she actually got the printed out the TDA uh, debate panel manual and just like highlighted it and read it to me like it was a study guide. I have somewhat of a similar story in starting debate with Jin. So it was also my mom that had pushed me into it. We happened to be family friends with Henry, who's the guy that started Link's Key Up. And uh, I was in grade five at that time. So I've been debating for probably almost seven years, which is kind of terrible to think about because that's nearly the majority of my life. Uh, and Jin isn't the only person who's been to in-person debate tournament before. That, that is very cap. But in terms of the people that have been the most important to my debate career, probably two. First being my mom for pushing me into it in the first place. And the second one is Brent. Uh, I've been a student since like grade seven. So that's a good five years now. And he's probably the nicest person I've ever met. So definitely a big inspiration to me continuing to debate. Um, okay, I guess I'll go next. Uh, so for me, I guess it was a bit different than everyone else because I started debate a lot later. Uh, I'd say I really got into competitive debate, like maybe middle of grade nine. And I did so through the club, right? So I, my parents didn't really know that much about debate before. So I just joined the club. I thought it was cool um, because all of my extracurriculars were really STEM focused before. So I thought it was really cool that I was doing something in the humanities. So um, that's sort of how I got started. As I, you know, sort of partner with more people, um, you know, both within the school and outside. Uh, so for example, Jin, I started to like it a lot more, um, especially just being able to attend tournaments, whether it's online or in person and just meet new people. Um, yeah. I think some of the most important people to me aren't really, I guess, from institutions because I don't really think I, I really attended Olympiads or EC or anything, but it's more so just the people, um, I guess, at the school and um, the people I've partnered with. So Jack Zhu was a really big inspiration for me. He was a bit older than me and he provided me with a lot of the, um, I guess he taught me a lot of the basics about how to debate and he really helped me improve. Uh, from some of my weaknesses and also Andrew Shi from the club really inspired me and encouraged me when I like lost tournaments and I'm just really grateful for having those like mentors that are a bit older than me to really help me improve so yeah Alrighty, I see this group of people actually has a fairly diverse well diverse enough set of experiences with starting debate um yeah it's really cool to hear your stories really cool to hear who has been the big mentors to you guys uh so yeah thank you for all sharing the next thing I then wanted to go into is the reason we're all here together is the McGill High School Tournament. So I want to just generally ask you guys, this is an open-ended kind of kind of question, how was your experience at McGill? How is it being back after two years of online? All right, so I guess I can't really speak to how it's been before online because I wasn't there then. But I guess generally, and I think I speak for most people here, when I say that, I think it was like just a genuinely really fun experience. Maybe it's because when I started debate, it was all like, you know, Zoom calls and private Discord rooms while you're prepping. None of the really like getting to meet people and talk to them and get to know them aside from the few debate servers that we've had. But yeah, I think definitely like 
I don't know. It, it seems like going to an in-person tournament means that not even like all the focus is on the tournament, right? Like, sure, there's the rounds, there's the, there's the prep that you have to do, but also like I don't know, just the sense of getting to meet friends afterwards. You know, taking walks, running to your rooms together to try and get there on time, especially if you're OG. Um, just the in-person tournaments have been so fun all around. Not only with the experience like during debate, how you can like you know have fun with people, make jokes, but also like you know after we can just get to know people. I'm glad people appreciate the dead time. I remember before COVID and Crystal. Crystal and Jin can definitely relate. It's just like York running hilariously late or like other tournaments running hilariously late. And then you look back and you realize you get to appreciate those times, especially when you have a lot of people that you know. Yeah, so I guess I don't remember my past days as debating in person very well. But what I do know is that um, what I do remember, the memories brought back from McGill was also like as Julian said, like running to rooms to prep. Um, there was also just the fact that you actually interacted with people you debated with. Like after you debated, um, after the debate ended, you would go outside the room and you would actually talk to other people. I remember back in person before COVID, one of the biggest, one of the most like best experiences of my time was at during Western after a round, the debate continued outside there. So it went on for a good 30 minutes of us just arguing alongside our cases. And it was really funny because you don't get those kind of interactions online. And I think it's actually quite unfortunate that you don't get the like small, quiet bonding time with people around you. Also, another thing I noticed is like after the tournament ends or like when you're not debating, when you're not actively debating or in a round or prepping, you just have a lot more to do. You have more people to talk to. You have more social connections to make. Um, I know I got really close with like Kevin, Jason, Julian, and Crystal at McGill. And we all like got to know each other. We went out to eat with each other. So that was just a unique experience that you don't get online because you, I remember for my first few online tournaments, it was really sad because after I debated, I would like sit there and eat alone. And it was just like, just one, you were left alone with your thoughts about how that tournament went. So I think in-person is definitely much more enriching and has much more experiences um, they actually last, like, they, they become kind of the highlights of your entire high school years. Yeah, I just want to add on to what Jin says. It's just so much more real when you debate in person. Like, when I stepped into, like, the out round, or when I was debating in the out rounds, that really, like, made me feel like debate is, like, an actual thing that's, like, worth, like, I don't know, being proud of, I guess, to some extent. Because when you're debating online, it's just kind of sad to stare at your laptop. And especially because when you're just staring at your laptop, it's kind of hard to like imagine like the other people, the other debaters as like actual people, which is really weird to say. But if I don't know, online, if I after a round, I would almost like never message people. And maybe that's just because like I'm a more shy person, but also because I felt like there was no point in doing that. But after like the out rounds or like after like literally any round and I would talk to people, it, it just felt so much more like an actual extracurricular, I guess, an actual activity instead of just something that you're doing, wasting your weekend. I felt that. I feel like when we were online, we just forgot the entire performance aspect of debating because I'm just yelling at my laptop and I don't want to bother my parents because they're probably asleep. Whereas when you're in there in person, you're standing up at the front of the, the entire room and like you make a pretty crappy joke, but the entire crowd laughs. It's just such a different feeling and it makes you, it's just, it feels really nice to be able to work the crowd like that and to see people react to your speeches and to watch the 
judges nod or like see your competitors make faces at you. Um, it just feels so much more interactive. I think I really echo a lot of what's already been said um, just by everyone else. But I think in particular, um, it's not only the performance aspect for me, but just being able to sort of, um, I guess, share the entire travel experience with like a group of friends. I think that's something that's very valuable because it really turns like a debate tournament from a debate tournament to like a really cool trip that I would go on anyways, right? To a city that's really cool to explore. So I think sometimes while, you know, debate, you might win, you might lose. Um, at least when you're in person, you know, you get that experience of just being able to travel and like laugh it off with some friends. And it makes it a lot more spontaneous and lighthearted, uh, more so than if you're online, right? If you, for example, um, do poorly at a tournament, you kind of just like close your laptop and just like, I don't know, do something else, right? But when you're in person, you get to share a lot more experiences afterwards. So I thought that's very valuable. Yeah, for sure. It was really nice seeing everyone in person. The, the, the poor thing about being a tournament organizer is I have like none of the downtime that you guys have. Like as a judge or as a debater, all of the downtime is actually just me and the rest of the team like scrambling to put the next round together, um, which means I don't get to say hi to as many people um, as I would like to. But as a judge at BP Nets, I hope you guys come. I will be there. I will be judging. So hopefully we get to share some of those times together too. But as a tournament organizer, like this is true for this tournament. This is true for Round Robin. You just have so little time, and it's actually sad. But I'll, I'll get I'll get chances in the future to enjoy it. I'll probably be coming to Hard House in Queens too to to help judge. Um, so I hope to see you guys all there. Sounds like people really enjoyed the tournament and being back in person. I really hearing you guys talk about the in person experience again makes brings me back to my high school days too, as a dino. Um, I think the next thing I want to ask you guys about is more so related to like your conception of the tournament. So I want to ask you guys how you thought it was run, how you thought the communication was beforehand, um, how you thought the food was, how you thought the judging was. Um, this is more so just for like us to run better tournaments and for people to know how to run better tournaments. Anyone have any distinctive thoughts on that? Okay, so like aside from the fact that this kind of sounds like one of those Q&A forms that the organizers send out afterwards, I think it was like, it was pretty well, right? Because, well, again, I don't have much to com compare it to, but like, especially for like online tournaments, those are already like notoriously delayed. This tournament was decently on time, um, which is, you know, an amazing quality to have for, for debate. We finished five minutes early. Yeah, but you also cut lunch by 40, so I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay so yeah the way it was run i think was good um especially since like you know there were still some poor students who were in those like mcgill classrooms and they had to deal with us but i think it was run well um as for food like the food was also good like you guys gave subway at lunch but one thing i want to complain about and i feel like other people might be able to speak extensively on was uh, the breakfast that we had around one where um for those that you know weren't in the tournament they gave us uh bagels and Montreal bagels are usually pretty good right but like they were like stale bagels from the cold and uh, there was no toaster and they also didn't have knives to cut the bagels in half. So all the debaters kind of had to like spoon cream cheese onto the bagels, not even like one side of the bagels, but like the entire bagel uh, with a plastic spoon. Uh, yeah, suffice to say I did not eat breakfast that day. But yeah, jokes aside, I think it was run really well. Like, yeah, especially like Orcom dropping motions on time, uh, getting people to their rooms. No one really got like crazily lost. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty well. Dealing with the fact that we had multiple GAs, we had four GAs on day one and two and a half on day two. That was a slight struggle, but I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. I got so, a counterpoint. 
go okay. ahead, go ahead. Okay. I got a counterpoint on the breakfast, though. We had apples and bananas. That was pretty snazzy. Normally, at a tournament, you risk, like, getting scurvy after living off of cold samosas and cold pizza for the entire weekend. So I think it was a pretty good breakfast. Yeah, so... Commenting on the breakfast as well, I really like the cake that you guys had. Like, I don't know if it's cake, but it was like, it was like a loaf of sweet bread, but it was really, really good. Um, and that kept me going through round four and three. No, just round four and round five. But uh, other than that, I think the tournament was run really, really well, especially because it was in person and in real life, which delays are easier to happen. There's a lot more things that can be messed up um but i think it ran very well on time and not just time but also like the organizing staff you could see that they genuinely enjoy doing this and that they weren't like getting dragged out for no reason to do this the judges were also like genuinely interested in judging speeches and everyone was very engaged so that's something you don't often see in online tournaments as well because you don't even see the expressions on their faces but i think it was very well run and the food was good. Like you guys got subway for lunch. Although unfortunately we weren't be able we weren't able to uh, get those subways because we decided it was a good idea to get Italian pizza um, <laughs> in the middle of lunch after we got a late RFDN call. So we uh, we didn't make it back in time for subway unless Julian did. But yeah, th those are my thoughts on how the tournament ran. I think it ran very well. So just commenting on like the subway man, like that. That subway was like the best the highlight of my week because I, I didn't like have any food the first day except for like one slice of the pizza like Crystal bought me because I was like late to the venue. But aside from that, the second day, breakfast, line was too long. I uh, didn't bother lining up for that. And then I had just like two wraps of lunch. Holy shit. Like highlight of my week. You might want to edit that out. Sorry for swearing. <laughs> I'm, gl I'm glad you like the subway, guys. Jason, did you have something to say? Um, not to continue the subway hype, but love the subway. And also, shout out to Rihanna for yelling over, like, what was it? 150 debaters on the first day. Um, that was, that was some dedication. Oh, yeah, that was some dedication on her part. Yeah, Rihanna be dying on her grave. But yeah, uh, anyone got anything else? Kevin, I just think it's noteworthy that the highlight of your week was a subway and not winning the tournament. What was your highlight? Of the well, week? the subway came before. I, 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 like I would go as far as to argue that the subway helped us win. Like I don't know, I, I was pretty starving at that point. You know what? I'll 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 take it. Maybe we'll do we'll do subway again, or at least I'll tell people what the order is. Like that was turkey. Like the, there there was like. That was like turkey and like I think like a cold <clears throat> cold cut combo, um. But like the the sauces, the salt and the pepper is what is what is what carries it. So in case you ever want to order that again, all right, cool. Were uh, the, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Were the surprise subs actually different, or were they all the same? Surprise subs? Oh, they came unlabeled. I'm pretty sure they were all the same because they. I, I'm so I was the one who ordered the stuff at the subway, but I had different people pick it up. And I guess it was code. I, I think their code was the surprise subs were like the default kind of meat subs, and then everything else was specially labeled. But they didn't know that, so they just labeled them surprise subs for for fun. Oh, <laughs> oh okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, and I think Angelou took like three or four or something. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure yeah. out if they were different, so I was like, you know, secretly like opening them up and being like, hmm. 
they all look the same. There is no surprise. <laughs> all right, so one other thing to add on the topic of food is the first day I remember helping out carry like, I don't know, it was at least a hundred boxes of pizza. Not a hundred, but it was probably 50 boxes of pizza, but everyone was just stacked like nine of them and we were all just running back to the GA and like people asked us to take it, but it was just a really funny scene. Like 15 debaters running with like nine boxes of pizzas on their hands. It was really funny, but yeah. Yeah, we got a hundred boxes of pizza in total. Uh, and the reason why we ordered so many is because we forgot that high schoolers don't eat as many pizzas as university students. Um, we had about the same proportion for university students, and it was a pretty good number. But uh, yeah, you guys did not eat as much pizza. How much was left over? I have no idea. I left, and it was dealt with, and I think we gave away maybe like 30 boxes. I have no idea. So yeah, I'm uh, glad, glad, glad the food was good. I'm glad you guys enjoyed the food and the rest of the communication and stuff. Or not communication, um... The rest of the tournament uh judging everything else okay the last thing the last kind of general topic i want to talk about before we get into the the motions and maybe going into some of the rfds is this year i specifically advised the ca team to lean the motions on the more difficult side because one the debaters have been in like a hyperbolic time chamber online getting better compared to previous years and if you take a look at like the actual participants list i'm pretty sure the average skill is like one of the highest we've ever ever had so what do you guys think about one just like your experience with the motions but also like the motions being targeted towards the average debater at that tournament but the motions were they they were also like they were quite balanced um they were difficult in some aspects insofar as like you get the motion and you have to do like some thinking in order to get up the case where it's not like the case comes immediately into your mind where it's like a stock motion uh okay but other than that it i think the motions also they range in levels of difficulty so in my opinion i think the first round of the socioeconomic rights one was more difficult for me to grasp than the other ones, but overall, I really like the emotions that were set. All right, so to follow up on the motions, I think a couple of rounds specifically, um, round three, the economic crisis motion, where I think the info side specifically referenced uh, Greece in 2008, and round five, which is about Saudi Arabia aligning with China instead of the US, those are kind of motions that like force you to have spec or else you can't really run a debatable case. Um, I, I say that even though me and Jason kind of asserted our way through closing government on that round, and um, I think we did a decent job of making up facts or things that were remotely true. But yeah, I think definitely though for some of the uh, juniors in this tournament, um, some of them were like a bit confused, especially regarding those like more heavy econ or IR topics, um, because they do require that specific knowledge. Like, you can't just have like all around knowledge and make your way out of it. You kind of need to know what specifically happened with those. I think we can talk more about those rounds um, in detail in regards to like what they address and i think tanish has a lot of like you know specific spec on saudi arabia but i think it was interesting that we uh, had motions that required more spec because i'm sure like you know for future tournaments it's going to make debaters do a lot more research you know look at the news and whatnot yeah would you guys like to see tournaments that run motions about this difficult easier more difficult i assume not more difficult than this yeah i like i like this level of difficulty I will say, was there a reason for there being sort of like a, um, like a more hard economic tilt? In, in oh, it's Max like... Rosen who made like who was one of the CAs. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I will say, I, I think I would have, like, if I did end up debating, I would have enjoyed this tournament a lot as a consequence, but, um, like, they, they are very good motions, very enjoyable motions. For sure. Yeah, that's why there's an econ tilt. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, if no one has any more general comments on the broader parts of the motions, we can go into them specifically. So let us get started. First round, I think we briefly touched on this already, but the motion is, this house believes that country should include socioeconomic rights, i.e. to food, water, housing in the constitution. Um, does anyone, uh, particularly people on op, want to start us off with what um, you guys ran, especially if you guys won? Because I think the biggest point of feedback was how the heck do you win on op? Yeah, so we were opposition closing opposition for that round. Um, that was probably most difficult that that wasn't the most difficult round but it was the round that was the hardest for me to grasp um what we were debating the best because it was really weird um we ran a case as to why this creates complacency and that this um this is just generally ineffective so we brought up illustrations about like americans not even being able to decide what their constitution even means and that by inputting this not only do you create like political uh, just a political abyss, but you also just cause a huge amount of in like not enough clarification about what these kind these kind of rights mean and how they manifest. Um, so like, yeah, that's 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 what we kind of ran, and I think it worked well enough because everyone else in our round kind of ran weird, strange cases that talked mostly about whether homeless people or poor people deserve to have aid given to them or not. We didn't really address what this motion was about, but I think if another team brought up like the valid arguments uh, that pertain more so to the motion, I'm not sure our case would have actually stood against them because it was also a close um, close loss to a close, uh, it was a close decision between us in the first place and OG in the second. So yeah. All right. As another team on CEO, I think you can kind of also speak to um, the way this round was perceived. I also had like had a lot of juniors coming up to me after this round. It's like, hey, this sounds absolutely unwinnable. How are you supposed to argue about this? Um, I think there was kind of like, I'll say three main things we identified. Um, the first thing on socioeconomic rights was like just a general reason why a lot of people don't like rights in the status quo. And I think uh, we're going deep into this, right? How debate has like a sort of liberal leaning bias and how we like to, for example, think about helping the downtrodden in society. A lot of people like instantly defer to these things. Um, but a lot of the reasons why people don't like rights in the status quo are actually like quite intuitive, right? So providing rights for people like free healthcare, uh, free education costs a lot of money. And a lot of people don't like that because it usually comes out of taxpayers' pockets. So that's one thing, right? But the second thing that we said was kind of like the quality of rights not might not even be good. For example, that's the debate between private and public healthcare, right? Healthcare, yeah. So the, not, or not private and public healthcare. So basically in a public healthcare system, when it's kind of like um, done by corporations, you're kind of able to like choose which companies are better for you. There's free market competition and whatnot. And in a system with like public healthcare, like Canada, for example, you would have, um, uh, you would have, for example, things like longer wait times because it's all uh, given to the government to um, distribute. So yeah, there's a lot of arguments against why that would be good. Uh, the second thing was about the principle because obviously with like a, a, a motion about rights, there's obviously gonna be a bunch of government teams talking about why this is like a principal obligation to have. So there's a lot of ways to take this down. I think the first way to take it down is in a lot of rounds, the way that it was run was usually pretty hung on providing the practical. So I guess you can say, if the rights that you provide to people aren't good, that's say if you provide them really bad housing, if you provide them really terrible quality healthcare, then that's also not really good in an all-encompassing sense. 
Uh, but the second thing was this characterization that I actually kind of liked, which is that not everyone always likes having universal rights. And the intuition for this is like, first the thing about private or public healthcare, but I think um, another example is like the education system, right? Because like the thing we pointed out about the public education system is that like in places where like education is super underfunded because it's funded by property taxes, um, that means education is probably also likely going to be bad in impoverished neighborhoods. So to address that, we have systems in the status quo, like the voucher system, for example, where you're able to choose which um, uh, which school your kids go to because every parent is given like a voucher for a certain amount of money to register for those schools. So it's not even true that everyone likes having universal rights in the status quo. So the characterization that we ran is that if quality of rights is like kind of arbitrary, we ought let people like vote for what rights are better for them, or we ought let them like determine which um, like ways to provide those rights are better, right? So be that public or private healthcare, be that universal schooling or a voucher system. So yeah, that was the second thing. And then the third thing was like addressing the comparative. Um, we just said, instead of having legal change, that being through a constitution, we just talked about political change, how we would, for example, vote in politicians that are more in favor of uh, distributive policies or increased social spending. And yeah, I think it was those three bases that kind of um, led us to like uh, way over most of the debate. So even though it might sound kind of unintuitive to most junior debaters, there still is a very legitimate off case. Yeah, I think just furthering what Julian said, I think the third, uh, I guess, path to take about furthering the comparative is quite um, convincing. Um, because at least in our round, I found that when the opposition ran the case about like why passing laws requires much less like political capital than changing the constitution and brings a lot more physical effect, I thought that was like a rather, uh, I guess, the most difficult argument on opposition to deal with. Um, so I think just trying to further that as an argument might also be an effective extension, for example, on closing opposition. Were any of you the one team on opening opposition that won the debate? No, right? Were you all CO? That's actually crazy. No, we were OG. Oh, you were OG? <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, you guys got the handicap. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think that's the most important thing for people to take away is what the heck you're supposed to do on op, especially closing up. Though closing up was better than opening up in this debate because you have more time to figure out exactly what the problem with what opening government is saying is. Uh, what do you guys perceive like the strongest opening government case to be? Um, or even closing government, maybe? I feel like, Crystal, I feel like you should comment on this. You're the first speaker. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say our is the strongest. Like, I know there's a couple of points that the government definitely wants to go over. Um, so I think for this motion specifically, um, one of them was that constitutions are just much harder to change. Uh, you're able to hold like institutions a lot more accountable and they transcend, for example, like states' rights, uh, which makes, you know, it makes it easier to apply rule of law in the country. Um, just talking about why the constitution is just, you know, better than like the legal system that we currently have and just trying to change those things will lead to a more long-term impact. Um, I think something else that feel like it would be good to talk about is that constitutions represent like the values of a country so sort of by putting something in the constitution that makes it a lot easier to pass further reforms whether that's through like legal precedents in the judicial system or whether that's just showing you know protesters or showing the citizens what a country's like values are so yeah yeah that makes sense i think the government case is pretty straightforward i don't know if there's that much more you can say on gov if your opening actually says all the important stuff, but uh, CG did okay because OG probably missed one or more of the good ideas here. So uh, yeah, not a problem there. I think 
in terms of the overall balance this mo in retrospect or not in retrospect seeing the data now i'm pretty sure this is convincing enough such that you should not run this motion because it's too bad it's it it tilts too hard towards government side i think um unless anyone has like a different thought on this i think this motion actually should not be run in the future because it's too balanced for um gov over op yeah i guess i'll just say one general thing um motions that usually um cause or uh, motions that force people to debate against you know intuitions of things like equality or for example providing everyone equal access to certain services or opportunities is usually seems quite unintuitive for a lot of junior debaters because that's the way that like most of the circuit is structured but i feel like if you get down to like thinking about it after a while um the cases usually become intuitive it's usually like the same couple arguments right um kind of ironically you have to think from the perspective of, like maybe a centrist or conservative or someone who abstains from being political but um yeah i think it's just the more experience you have debating these um motions that seem fairly unintuitive the more like intuitive it gets over time yeah makes a lot of sense being able to see the the conservative centrist point of view actually actually helps a lot because there's probably very very strong and like probably reasonably well reasoned um centrist opposition to doing this kind of thing as well so yeah that makes a lot of sense Alrighty, cool let's go to the next motion um the CA team actually probably mistakenly thought that this second motion was more difficult than the first motion, which probably ended up not actually being true. Motion is, this house prefers a world where the dominant social norm is to, is to be single. Anyone uh, want to open us off on uh, what they thought about this round? Yeah, so, yeah, uh, this round went very interestingly for us because, uh, so... If we were on closing government and our opening government ran the stock case about like preventing abusive relationships, why relationships are just like unfulfilling in general. And then um, they took basically all the content we were thinking of. So me and Sarah decided to run a really strange um, environmental argument. So the judge thought that if we fleshed it out better, we may have won the round. The environmental argument is that when you're single, you're not going to make babies because the purpose of marriage is to have babies, is to provide a nuclear family. And then the argumentation we ran was that as a result of this, we can reduce the population on Earth in this like other world. People are not making as many babies. There's a lower population on the Earth. Uh, there's a lower population on the Earth, which means that the impact of individuals living on this planet is going to be reduced by a huge <laughs> level. And then we try to weigh it over everything else um, in this round because if people can't live, then all the impacts not being fulfilled in relationship is lesser. Uh, but the judge didn't really buy our mechanism, so we then ran a feminism extension. Uh, so we ran two extensions, um, and the feminism extension seemed to stick more. So that's that's what we took. Uh, that's how we took the two. Obviously, I'm not going to place all my bets on that that Thanos argument. All right, Jin. I kind of just want to ask, right? Like, was there any, like, op speaker that was kind of like, your case is entirely predicated on people having babies. Like, what about people who just get into relationships and just, like, stay in relationships? Did they ever challenge that premise? Uh, they, ch they actually challenged the premise that even if they accepted that people, they're going to be less people, but then they said that corporations are still going to abuse environment to the same extent. Um, then we kind of, Sarah managed to diffuse most of that by like explaining that it's like just the, the aggregate amount of less people means that corporations have less people to 
cater towards, but I think that mostly mitigated the argument as well. I don't think they actually brought up that analysis. Um, yeah, I was on CG. I ran probably the same feminism extension that Jin ran. Um, it was just about how if you're single, like women are more like this tends to benefit women more because they're more often the ones that are like locked into relationships because they become like financially uh, dependent or whatever. I think the more interesting extension that we ran is about how like this increases standards for a lot of guys. And I thought this was kind of funny because we got to talk about how this like just incel culture as in like, if you're more likely to get dropped because women want to be more single or there's more of a social desire to be single, then you just have people that, you just have more men that are like actually improving themselves, which we thought was probably like a really interesting thing. And I actually do want to talk about the op, even though I wasn't off in this debate, I think something that Serena brought up as our judge was like really interesting. Basically what Serena said was like, if there is a less of a social preference, no, okay, basically on op what Serena was saying was that marriage and being in a relationship can help you escape from other types of other suppressive parts of your life like your family which like we thought was a clever way of flipping a lot of the gov content about how relationships can restrict you as a human being basically it flips that and say it helps you escape your family um which is like i don't know an interesting way to think of the motion so yeah i guess i'll comment on this um our opening opposition i think ran some pretty interesting and I guess, well-developed points. I think one of them just on more resources for like getting into relationships, so like more education, more counseling, things like that. Um, and that sort of like prevents, I guess, according to them, like unhappy or abusive relationships. Um, I, to be very honest, I forgot what they ran as their second argument. I believe it was just something on like the general happiness of being in a relationship and just getting, you know, feelings of trust, things like that. Uh, on closing half, we kind of took an L. Uh, we ran this extension of like why children would be better off in our world like both in the foster care system and just like growing up under two parents um i think the reason why we didn't do so well is our extension kind of fell out of the round when the other three teams try to just like not engage with it that well or like i guess most of the other points in the round were not relating to i guess the well-being of children so it wasn't factored into as a big uh you know metric for judging the round at the end by the judges um and also i think we should have just done a better job developing it sort of on my fault but I think, yeah, that's generally just the op case, I guess, in my round, which is just first on like the benefits of just being in a relationship intrinsically, um, more resources for couples, uh, more education. And I guess lastly, if you also want to take a three on CO, um, just about uh, the well-being of children in the foster care system. Um, I'll say, I think like with, sorry, with this prefers motion, like, Presumably in this world where you have a, a, like a narrative to stay single, there's still like independent reasons why people want to pursue uh, other forms of relationships or like social connections, right? So like you're more dependent on your friendships and stuff like that. But would that mitigate to some degree a lot of the stuff about like abusive relationships existing uh, in opposition's world? If it's true that like, your friendships are now the ones that are like you're, you're a lot more dependent on or your family is something that you're a lot more dependent on and i think the flip there would then be like there's unique reasons as to why relationships are like uniquely fulfilling so the fact that love or, or, or like the pursuit of uh, of like a long-term partner isn't just a social norm but it's also like a genetic predisposition which i know is like not the best analysis to run but it's just like 
canonically true, right? That like humans exist or like creatures exist to fucking procreate. Oh, sorry, I can't swear. To to flip and procreate. Um to to some degree. So it's, it's like there's sort of like a conflict, uh, I don't know, uh, of interest. Plus I think like there's other actors that probably want to push narratives that that sort of like cut against like this narrative for um uh, I don't know, single life. And so if there's some like derived sense of fulfillment that is greater than any other form of relationship that you get from pursuing relationships, and then I guess a lot of the stuff about like why relationships improve over time in a world where they're not uh, shunned or, or, or they are the social norm, um, presumably means that you actually end up accessing like more fulfillment or, or more meaningful relationships and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I think that's probably just like the good alt case, right? Yeah, no, Tanush is definitely right about how, like, that flip is super strong. Um, I guess the first thing was about, like, countervailing norms, which is kind of used as ref on CG. Because our CEO ran this case about how, like, this would encourage people to have less children and, like, the economic impacts of why that's bad. Um, it was a kind of weird thing to hinge their case on, but I feel like the ref to that was quite simple. We kind of just said that there also exists, uh, here's another debate where there exists countervailing narratives in the status quo for people to still have children, right? Think about, like, people in the developing world where that's an inherent part of their culture. Or think about how, for example, conservative or traditionalist and religious cultures still emphasize childbirth as a really important and virtuous part of life. So if that still happens, then presumably people are still going to have children. Um, but the second thing was about like um, the biological predisposition to it. And Tanush is kind of right for saying it's like canonically true, but it also sounds weird in debate. Uh, we still ran it though. So we kind of talked about how like first people feel romantic attraction, like if you just spend a lot of time with someone. Like, yeah, there's biological reasons for why you might be attracted to them and want to pursue something. But secondly, we just kind of flat out said that, like, people do get horny. And, like, that is still going to exist on either side of the house if you like it or not. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good mitigation of the alt claim. Um, just commenting in, like, jumping in, I, I just find it really, really ironic and kind of funny that, like, we're asking a bunch of, like, 15, 16, 17-year-olds who've never really been in a real relationship to analyze what makes a relationship healthy and, like, why it's true that people want to procreate. I just, yeah. Yeah, it feels like the wrong people to ask, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, let me interrupt just... for a second. Like, have y'all ever been Saudi Arabia trying to decide whether you want to align with China or not? True. Like... Mean, yeah, I, I have for sure. Yeah, and like adding on to what Kevin said, uh, it's also like we're debaters. So it's also like in our nature to just not be, not be in relationships. It's probably even easier to assert on like an IR level than relationships. I don't know. Debaters usually, we're good at coming up with a lot of like things that sound intuitively true, but might not be true in the real world. But especially when it comes to relationships, like, I don't know, that is not our subject matter. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, I don't know. I think the asking the 15 year olds kind of thing is, uh, is maybe something we do for a lot of things that we maybe should not ask 15 year olds. Okay, cool. Let's go to round three. So the round three is an info slide. The Greek Euro crisis, characterized by a dramatic fall in investor confidence in the legitimacy of Greek economic reporting and management, began in 2009 after the Greek government accurately revealed their high fiscal deficit after years of high economic growth driven by underreported borrowing from foreign banks. The motion is, this house believes that, in times of economic crisis, it is legitimate for governments and central banks to strategically withhold information that may damage market confidence. All right, so 
I guess I can go first. So we were on OO. I think this is probably the best speech I gave the entire tournament. Um, so I basically ran a three-point case on opening opposition. So we ran – the first argument was on why this worsens the crisis. So it means that people get more uh, – it's more likely that people will rely on things like rumors instead of actual accredited information from the government because now they don't know what's happening. And it's in human nature to believe to want to hang on to facts or believe things. So it means that because anyone can make anyone can make rumors, it means you are actually getting credible information, which actually hurts the markets more. Um, so that was basically an overly simplified of our argument. We probably we probably had more mechanisms than that. The second one was on political accountability. So we posed like a trick POI to OG to confuse them as to whether they would cover up the existence of COVID-19 because that was an economic crisis and that caused a recession. But um, that was like a that was like a red herring, and they they took it and like spent like one minute explaining it from a POI. But we then ran at political accountability, basically why governments can cover up all the kinds of things that they do. Um, and under this, we also talked about why if the government covered up the existence of the 2008 financial crisis, then people would not have known what caused it. People would not have known the lax regulations the government had. People wouldn't have been able to change the root cause and long-term issues that otherwise would plague society. Um, there was that argument, and then also like uh, people... Uh, it, it, we can. It was that argument, and then there's also the argument that, um, so it's just political accountability. Governments can use this to hide behind. The last argument we ran was, um, was it again? Oh yeah, it was like ruins people's lives. Basically, peop, uh, recessions are a part of the business cycle. Like this was a really good frame we used to like basically kill their side. It was essentially just the business cycle centers around recessions and then periods of growth. So whatever you do, even if you shut everyone up and zip them up you can't stop a recession from happening. And what that means is that people are going to inevitably lose money. We would rather them, instead of like having the retirement savings being destroyed because they don't have information about whether the recession is coming or not, them being able to pull that money out and be better uh, on their own. And then after that argument, Sarah ran another argument on the principle as to why governments have a uh, principal obligation to tell the truth to their citizens and that because they are elected, they cannot do this. Um, so that, that was a four-point case we ran. It, it was really interesting. I really liked that round. Um, oh, sorry, Crystal, you want to speak? Sure. I like the framing there. I think we had something generally similar. We didn't talk so much about the principle our CO did that which is what made it kind of close because CEO could have taken it over us marginally. What we talked about was a couple of things. So first, that there's an information asymmetry. So if you're a major bank and you have all these analysts working for you in a crap ton of tech, you're probably able to predict what is going to happen. And the government might lie to you, but it doesn't really matter. So in the end, it's probably the individual investors and traders that are impacted the most by a lack of information. Uh, and then the next thing that we talked about was trust in institutions. So if it was true that people figured out that, you know, there was some crisis that was going to happen, because it's pretty obvious when crises happen, they're not going to trust anything the government tells them anymore. They're going to avoid things like quantitative e easing. So they're not going to be willing to buy things like government bonds because they don't believe that the government's going to do anything very well. Yeah, yeah, for so, sure. So I think we sort of analyzed um, the round under two themes, like one of them being like curtailing the actual 
economic crises and also just um you know monetary policy after the crises to try to lift the country out of the recession so i think two i think impacts that we ended up winning on was just like one talking about the inequality like crystal mentioned um but also why just like qe and just like buying bonds as a government is just so much harder um when like companies and banks and people don't have trust in institutions anymore uh yeah jason sorry oh no yeah i was just gonna say that um I was on OG, so our perspective might be a little different on the round. We had two arguments. Um, the first one was about, was a, like, I thought it was kind of a weird principle. Julian insisted that we run it as an argument, so I ran it. It was this principle on how we ought to do this because it like maximizes output or something. I don't know, Julian can explain this more later, but there was a comparison here to how we like conceal information during war. And I thought that was the like important part of the principle because it was like very intuitively true. And at least it like justifies why the government does this if we improve some practical benefit. So that's where I thought that principle is going. There's probably some like more philosophical thing that Julian will talk about later. Um, our second argument was like the very basic one about market confidence. And what I'll say here is I got halfway through my argument and I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. So I actually knew my OO in this round. They're like friends from my school. So I ended up using her analysis, like that she was explaining to someone in the hallway, which I thought was kind of funny um, because I, I, I still don't think it was true, but I ended up using it against her. So yeah, anyways, Julian can probably explain the actual case now. Okay, so yeah, I guess just to preface, uh, we faced uh, Stephanie and Jessica round three. Shout out to them. They're like really cool debaters from our school that we went there with. But yeah, so the reason for our really awkward split um, in opening government was because I kind of expected what they would run, and I thought the case would be majorly principled, uh, and I was right. So I think this debate is kind of one of those really generic, uh, I'm going to use big words here, some of those very generic uh, deontology versus consequentialism debates, where it's kind of like, do you do something that's kind of morally unjustified to reach better practical outcomes, or do you do like, or do you just not do it because it's just morally unjustified in and of itself? So do the ends justify the means, or do the means justify the ends, right? Um, Okay, uh, Crystal does cap, but I'll explain it later, right? So I think the case that we tried to push on government was pretty intuitive. It's just that things like, for example, things like housing or things like the dollar don't really have any inherent value. It all gets value off of spe speculation. And um, the reason for that is kind of just like we, as an aggregate of humanity, we give these things value uh, because that's the whole reason currency is created, right? So the principle that kind of exists on our side of the house is to say that the government should always increase for people because that's the reason we elect them into power. And the reason why we increase utility is because if you give these people this information, then time and time again through history has showed that they always make bad decisions, right? People panic sell their stocks or assets um, out of fear and self-preservation during these times. And um, it's because of that that it usually causes everything to drop in value. So not only does one person lose, but the vast majority of society loses because um, everything goes down to value, so that hurts everyone. So the principle that we kind of ran was a couple fold. First, we say that the government needs to maximize utility, but the second is that like things will usually improve over time, given like we're debating this probably in Western liberal democracies and like markets will self-correct themselves as people make better policies. Um, and then the final thing was the thing that Jason said on wartime, right? Usually if people are in situations of like duress, it's sometimes justified for the government to withhold information because it causes them to make better decisions, right? So the analogy is that in wartime, if you tell people, for example, news of like your own citizens dying or really, really bad things happening, then people might desert or not choose to fight and they might make bad decisions on that basis. But governments that withhold information can end up like making something good out of it. That's the reason why we think that uh, the, the principle of victory exists on our side. I feel like uh, if Crystal and Kevin has anything to say about like how our practical is like really stupid, they, they can go ahead with that. Um, yeah, I think that was the majority of our case. It was kind of just like 
wash out the principle as hard as we could, and then try and take it on practical ground. I disagree with the identification of the debate as a deontology versus like utilitarianism stuff, because I think it's a lot easier for either side to win on the practical harms because there's just so many of them. If you're good enough at arguing the principle, I think you could probably take a second, but it's definitely not round winning, at least in my opinion. I haven't seen y'all's principles, so I wouldn't know, but it's just not intuitive to me. Perhaps I am undervaluing unprincipled, uh, undervaluing principled arguments, though. Um, no, I actually will agree with Crystal here. There might have been some part of the principle that I didn't present in my first, but the way I presented it almost explicitly was to say, this justifies why we're doing this um, as like sort of like a burden, you know, like the very basic burden things like, oh, is this justified? Is this the best solution? I, I ran that almost as sort of just to justify it. Um, and now that I do think about the notion from like an op, op perspective, I do agree that it's like very much principle based. Um, so yeah, just throwing that out there. You know, sometimes I don't agree with my partners. All right. I feel like, oh yeah. Oh, Kevin, you can go ahead. But I feel like, yeah, Joseph was the judge for our round and he probably understood our cases to a decent degree because he made the call. So I think, yeah, Kevin, you could go. And then Joseph, why don't you talk a bit about our round? Because I feel like all of us are slightly confused in how we saw it. Okay, this is really short, but I actually disagreed with Crystal a bit on this. I, I think this is a personal thing, but I really undervalue principles in rounds like these because I feel like if the principal is just talking about like what the government ought to do, and then you prove that during a financial recession, like 10 million people are going to like lose their assets, then like at that point, don't we just lose in the principle as well? I, I guess that's just sort of my view in this round, um, especially when talking about like catastrophic events like this. But <laughs> for sure, I, I think I need to learn more about this as well. Yeah, okay. So I can weigh into how the principle kind of works in the round. I think, I think the principle about not lying to people and giving people... I think that the opening opposition in my round, which was, um, which was uh, Stephanie and Jessica... I think they ran the principle quite well. I think they went beyond the surface level analysis of just saying that it's bad to lie. They explained that this violates people's autonomy and this uh, allows people to not, or it stops people from being able to make the best decisions. The The issue is that for an autonomy argument, especially, there are really, really strong flips on specifically that principle where you can argue that autonomy is actually worse on their side because more information or like more information or how should I say this putting people into a system that is more restrictive on the number of outcomes they have is actually a larger restriction on people's autonomy than being able to uh, being able to have a wider array of choices but have a smaller set of outcomes that you could you could get right so like if you if you if giving people autonomy makes all of their choices worse by putting them in a situation that's much like much more likely to be a worse financial recession, then it's really unclear why the autonomy is valuable here. Because theoretically, like I think it's really really hard to make the to to reach the impact of autonomy is valuable because it's autonomy, and rather the the one that's often better is that you don't know what people's choice uh what, what people's best choice is and people often have better information to make that choice and that's why you give people autonomy i think if you can reach the the first justification it becomes better um and stronger in this round but i just think it's real it's much much more difficult to to make that link uh and actually run that argument well compared to win on the practical so that's the first thing the second thing is i think that 
behind a lot of the, the the opening stuff it's rather difficult to um win on closing if your opening runs the right case unless you pay very close attention to what exactly your opening was missing so i think that um this kind of happened in our round jason and julian won the round off having a fairly solid case with fairly solid impacts um and their closing wasn't able to spot what the hole in their case was and they kind of ran like like an impact extension um about being able to uh, get more foreign investment, which of course is important, but relies on all the same mechanisms of this actually improving the economy uh, in a domestic er in a domestic sense in the first place. Uh, so that's the first thing um, that you should probably not try to do in a round like this. They ended up losing, unfortunately. Um, whereas the the closing opposition team actually did like the reverse. So like it wasn't the case that Jessica and Steph on OO. Um, against Jason and Julian didn't try to win on the practical. They tried to, but the amount of time they dedicated it to it, alongside the fact that they didn't explain why this kind of news would be likely to leak anyways and, and would be potentially worse, meant that they really had not much ground on the practical, whereas closing op just stands up, gives like two reasons um, why it's the case that uh, it would be likely to leak and why that would be probably harmful in the way that it's likely to leak. They can co-op some of O's benefits. They can add some impacts of their own. They can weigh a little bit against uh, the opening and bada bing, bada boom. You have a second place in from from not a really uh, super strongly developed case, but good enough in uh, idea and what it basically accomplished in the round to come second. Um, so yeah, I think that was the main thing uh, that was kind of important to take away from the round that I watched. I think that one big thing that is really that that uh, wasn't mentioned thus far in from you guys that is that is also important to realize is that you also have other tools to deal with financial crisis, right? So I don't know if this matters that much in the op case. I think the op case is like strong enough already. But what you can uh, what you can say is you can also say how does this particularly interact with other things that you may want to do in order to try to fix an economic crisis? So you're still going to use like monetary policy. You're still going to try to inject money into the economy. How does this affect what you may, uh, what like how effective your policy may be? I think there's like reasonable analysis that you can run on closing that probably uh, beats out opening because opening is like, well, this will fix the problem and probably no, it doesn't fix the problem by itself in reality. But if you combine it with a few other things, that can probably be the difference in being able to get yourself out of an economic recession or not. I'm, I'm sure there's some good analysis that you could run there. Um, I think the, I think that's most of what I should comment on. I gave like a really long and detailed RFD that it doesn't make sense to, for me to really talk about unless if um y'all like hear the round, but basically like CG had like not a very strong case OO lost on practical and lost on on the importance of principle. CO had like a decent reason for practical and placed over OO for that reason. And then OG um, explained why their their weighing about basically practical was more important than not lying to people and people's autonomy. Uh, and then also then effectively won on that uh, that practical meant meaning that they should win the round, which is why I, I word them the win with like reasonably high high speaks too. So, uh, yeah, I thought that round was really cool to watch. There's a lot of stuff that you can do in that round, and it sounded like people had a lot of cool cases. So, um, did anyone else have anything they wanted to add? Okay, cool. I think I judged... Oh, I don't think I judged any of y'all again until the out rounds. That's fine. Um, we'll, we'll talk about those. So, um, on to round four. So, round four has an info slide as well. 
uh, pre-professional undergraduate university programs prepare students for jobs in specific industries, i.e. finance, architecture, rather than educating them in fields that are purely academic or abstract and do not have obvious career applications, i.e. mathematics and or political science. In recent years, applications to these programs have increased and admissions have become more competitive, i.e. the average, it, it, the admissions average for McGill architecture has increased from an 87 to a 96, and a university funding, and university funding has increased, i.e. the creation of a new building just for undergraduate business students at York University. That's a very long info slide. The, ma uh, the motion was, is this house... Yeah, this house regrets the rise of pre-professional university programs. Quick, speed run. Jin, go. Uh, so we ran basically an argument on a few arguments. First one on, like, what's it called again? Velocity? Um, no, flexibility? Something like that. Basically why uh, when these are very strict, rigid structures of courses, they pigeonhole you into one or two kinds of jobs and careers, and in this very uh, versatility, yeah, versatility. In this very harmful and fluctuating job market, uh, you are not able to have proper opportunities through that. Um, all right, uh, and apparently Jacob Silikoff really, really liked this argument. So yeah, um, and then we also ran another argument on why this harms socioeconomic individuals, where the people who, these are very highly competitive, they are basically, they are uh, by definition very limited in supply because there aren't as many specialized professors. And what that means is that you can have, like you can benefit lower socioeconomic classes. Um, yeah, that, that was basically our case. We talked about why you have to have like uh, 1600 SAT, uh, seven APs in order to get into these kinds of programs, which makes it very difficult um, for many of these lower socioeconomic individuals to be able to access um, to be able to access these kind of benefits yeah okay cool um i'll just briefly say what i think is strong on c on co because I, I judged how and uh, how and uh liz for this round and they did a very good job i think one of the best things you can run on co that seems pretty logical but is maybe not so true in the real world um is that when there are a lot of pre-professional undergraduate programs and uh, you incentivize and give um, smaller universities conference to open these programs, which allows you to probably increase supply, make it less expensive to get in, decrease the admission standards, and allow many more people to have what are probably objectively good programs for getting a job. And the stuff about flexibility isn't so important if you're just someone that wants to make money and wants to get a fairly high-paying job that doesn't have time to waste doing um, a lot of uh, doing a lot of uh, education that doesn't really matter to you. It looks like Jason and Julian ran a similar thing, so I think we can gloss over this uh, and move on to round five, which I think was also a really good round uh, to talk about here because a lot of people had trouble. So round five was, this house believes that it is in the interest of Saudi Arabia to align with China as opposed to the US. Who wants to go off on this one? Wait, okay. We were OG. Um, me and Tanush have an argument about whether this is prop tilted or not. I honestly think it was prop tilted because there's more intuitive analysis, but if you, I agree with Tanush because if you actually research a bit more about Saudi Arabia and how like the whole oil market works, then opposition probably makes more sense. But it's essentially just um, China. We ran a few arguments. We first ran like the US hates everything Saudi Arabia does. Like they don't like their uh, women rights. They don't like their social, like their stance on progressivism. They don't like uh, 
just basically the autocracy that the people in there live in. Um, and because they're not a democracy, the U.S. just by default does not like their values. And then the important framing here was that the reason why what the U.S. thinks impacts your country is that the U.S. now is more integrated within your society. So um, when you do more trade with it, when you rely on it as a main buyer of your oil, what that means is that the threats they make of that might shift a leader's perspective into trying to change into uh, maybe a democracy, the threats they make um, to force you to become a democracy or else they will lay sanctions on you actually mean much more. And the U.S. does do these threats all the time, but they don't matter right now because they're not actually – Saudi Arabia is not connected to the U.S. on any like deep level. Uh, then the other argumentation we ran was like the U.S. is moving towards environmental green energy uh, and like Biden spent a lot of money on green technology, like billions of dollars. Uh, so that just proves that they are less likely to want to rely on dirty oil. Um, yeah. And then the last argument that we ran, I believe, was was about I actually don't quite remember. Um was something about why China is more likely to accommodate for what Saudi Arabia wants. Oh, it's more it's more lucrative, so it gains more money because China not only is a big has a huge population and is going to become a global superpower, it is also just uh, just needs more fossil fuels. It relies less on environmental technology. It has less environmental technology or less uh, willingness to uh, adopt such technology compared to the U.S. And that's basically the argumentation we ran on OG. Yeah, actually, Julian and I ran literally the same case. We had one extra mech, which is just supporting the idea that China is a better consumer for your oil. And we said that China supports a lot of uh, African development projects in uh, through their BRI program. And a lot of the times they need like dirty energy in order to uh, fuel those types of development projects, which is another reason why China can be a very good market for fuel uh, in the long term. But other than that, we have basically the same case. Okay, so the first thing to say is like, fun fact, uh, the largest trade partner for the for Saudi Arabia is China first and then the US. So right now, Saudi Arabia is in a very interesting position where economically it's able to trade with both countries as it wishes. Um, and the types of things it trades with China right now aren't actually like directly oil, but it's like mineral products and stuff like that. Um, because China also trades with like Iran and actively, you know, funds Iranian like uh, you know, arms deals and stuff like that, which is obviously like Saudi Arabia's biggest enemy. Um, and like the important thing to realize there, I think the general point to realize there is like there's a distinction between like economic alignment and political alignment. And as far as economic alignment goes, Saudi Arabia is broadly neutral. As far as political alignment goes, it is very like decidedly or to a larger degree supported by the West, right? So I think there's a couple of things to point out in terms of framing with how the Western Saudi Arabian relationship exists. Number one, uh, Saudi Arabia is a massive strategic uh, importance to like the US and the West at large. And the reason for this is over time, the influence the West has within the Middle East is sort of waning, right? So the countries by which the West sort of exercises its influence are waning. And the largest country by which it's able to do that right now is Saudi Arabia. Um, and then the reason as to why the West cares about exercising this influence is because the 
only sort of like existential security threat to the USA in the last 20 years has been terrorism. So there's often like a massive political pressure to do things like suppress terrorism and things like that, right? Which is why there was a massive uptick in things like arm trades uh, with Saudi Arabia and, and the Middle East uh, at large, right? So, so the West broadly cares about having this sort of like uh, sort of support uh, within this area. Um, I think the second thing to point out there is like uh, U.S. voters are sort of like brain broken when it comes to politics. So they have like so many things that they have to vote on that Saudi Arabian like rogue government support is very, very back, uh, is very on the back burner of like the U.S. voter agenda. So the fact that things like abortion, Kanye West coming on to like Tucker Carlson and things like that often take up a lot more of like your political sort of attention as a voter often means that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is something that voters generally just don't end up caring about. And like the other reason for this is both Republicans and Democrats have just generally had pretty favorable ties with Saudi Arabia. So it was both Bush and and Obama that were able to sort of like exercise their ties with Saudi Arabia for their own advantage within the Middle East, which seems to suggest that you often don't actually have a choice as a voter more structurally in sort of changing like the things that you do with Saudi Arabia. Um, And I think you can sort of push this framing to a more significant degree and actually say that Saudi Arabia holds a significant amount of influence over the West when it comes to like, uh, when it comes to the power that it holds here. Um, And the reason here is this, right? Like proxy wars that the West is able to wage against China or, um, uh, sorry, against China or like, what's it called? Russia in places like Yemen through the Yemeni civil war by funding the Hadi government or like uh, in Syria by funding Syrian rebels uh, often comes directly through Saudi Arabian allyship. And so the lack of being able to do that completely decreases any amount of Western influence you have within the Middle East, which cripples like the only security threat that Saudi Arabia has broadly cared about for, sorry, that the West has cared about for so long. So just in terms of framing, I think that knocks out a lot of the stuff about like the West being something that an entity that sort of forces Saudi Arabia to act one way or another. And I think it means that at best, the types of things or compromises the West seeks often happen in like a bubble or a vacuum. So post Jamal Khashoggi, maybe there's some level of a sort of like care to increase the progressivism in Saudi Arabia. But frankly, Saudi Arabia is okay with those trade-offs, right? So that's framing. In terms of constructive material, I think the first thing to point out is that the largest thing that Saudi Arabia cares about, like when it comes to its own interests, is not like, is not being lucrative, is not like broad trade partnerships, because as I mentioned, like economically, they're able to remain pretty neutral. It's actually that they have Iran on their border. And like historically, and just generally speaking, they've always been a massive hater of Iran, right? So the fact that like, um, like, 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 you know, Sunni and Shia Muslims are often divided in this area. Persians and Arabs are often divided in this area. But also these governments have been at war with each other for a long period of time. Um, Saudi Arabians often give legitimacy to their government to a very significant degree from being able to wage war with Iran. Here's the problem, though. China and Russia are the single greatest arms trade dealers with Iran, right? So right now, China and Russia fund a lot of like arms, like arms proliferation within within Iran. The types of bombs that are lobbed onto like uh, Saudi Arabian oil factories are bombs funded by the Chinese and Russian government. And what that seems to suggest is like um, 
there is an active sort of like two worlds that are colliding um, that can no longer collide when you align with China. Why? Because obviously China does not want uh, Iran to bomb Saudi Arabian oil anymore and vice versa wouldn't want Saudi Arabia to bomb Iranian oil in a world where uh, like China is now the ally or the common ally of both of these partners. And that's obviously bad, number one, because it means that Saudi Arabia and Iran are, are no longer able to pit themselves against each other, even though they structurally, like, they want to, and, like, Saudi Arabia especially wants to. And that seems to be a massive, massive threat to its sovereignty and legitimacy. Number two, it becomes subservient to China in the system. Um, and I think this also sort of bleeds into, like, an economic harm, which is that if right now Saudi Arabia... Um, is able to remain economically neutral, the point at which it shifts its political alliance uh, and now sort of like trades uh, with China and Iran also trades with China to a significant degree, but it's no longer getting its arms from the USA and it's buying its arms from China or it has to buy its arms from China at this point. Like that in and of itself probably... So, so I think that probably means that you create like a race to the bottom where, you know, both Iran and Saudi Arabia want these arms, want uh, to sell their products to China, for example, but they both now have to undercut each other and you actually decrease leverage. Um, comparatively, what Saudi Arabia is able to do right now with the USA is like they're able to actually like strategically increase their oil reserves to create scarcity within the oil market, which like increases prices and is massively economically advantageous. Uh, to Saudi Arabia and its economic interests. Um, and, and I think there's like a, lo a lot of stuff about that, right? Um, I think the second argument is in terms of like the covertness stuff. You can actually flip a lot of this because right now Saudi Arabia is able to get away with a lot of the shit that it does because of the fact that it's backed by like the West and Western actors broadly, right? So the fact that Saudi Arabia trades with Germany and a lot of European countries means that when it comes to like the massive war crimes that it commits or the massive shady things that it does, the most it gets is a slap on the wrist. Comparatively, Iran is the country that gets sanctioned to actual bits um, in their world because Iran is actively allied with China. Here's the thing. China is often a very secular ally in that they don't have a lot of like broad global support. And what that means is like, um, you know, like you often get a, a bunch of sanctioning uh, uh, and that's and that kind of stuff that that sort of screws over like your um, uh, like like your ability to actually act covertly. So in fact, you're able to act a lot more covertly when you're backed up by the West. Um, the final thing to say is just on the environment stuff. I think you can flip the environment stuff as well, which is just that like empirically speaking, China's actually had a very significant push towards environmental reform much more in a significant degree plus it's an absurd claim to make that there will be zero reliance on oil in a future world especially as i mentioned when saudi arabia's trade with oil isn't actually to the usa or china but rather trades oil more to do with like countries like india so india mostly buys its oil from uh saudi arabia or, or, or like uh, germany mostly buys its oil from saudi arabia and these sorts of actors are sort of just like peripheral actors in this debate that sort of don't change um, but things like minerals are always going to be bought from either side of the house. Um, but then also just like oil is just generally going to be used in like uh, the USA, like to create energy and stuff like that. So which is why I think like op is actually like good uh, and probably decreases a lot of the gov stuff. Yeah. Oh, there's also like a good gov argument that I think everybody missed uh, for, for this motion. 
Yeah, so, so basically it's just like like 80 percent of like Saudi Arabian like agricultural and food import comes from Africa. Africa is mostly dominated by the Chinese market. So it's almost like an existential crisis that Saudi Arabia faces if China at any point is able to cut off its food supplies for like political leverage or things like that, which would cripple Saudi Arabia massively. So if they want to prevent that, they probably have an incentive to align with China. Yeah. All right, thanks guys for that. Let's go on to the semifinals now. So semifinals also has an info slide. The motion was, or the info slide was, many major corporations like Facebook, Nike, etc., have recently announced their intent to explore and invest in the metaverse. Metaverse is a new technology concept currently in development that is trying to bridge the gap between interactions in the virtual and real world through technologies such as augmented reality, VR, creating virtual worlds, etc. So, um. What did you guys uh, run for this round? I know I watched two of you guys debate. So uh, what were your cases or your thoughts? It's interesting because this was like the, we ran like a really similar case to the one that we ran in like uh, provincials finals, like Osdu probs, BP probs, like last year. Um, and it was interesting because like the other teams were like, I think two of the other teams were also in that round. So this sort of felt like a repeat, but uh, I think Rand, the main extension was, let me think about this very clearly so I can make sure I'm making sense. Uh, I think we talked about like first finding identity online, just being able to have um, more real experiences while still maintaining safety and maintaining sort of the anonymity that comes with being online. Um, and then the second thing we wanted to focus on was like access, talking about bringing like exotic experiences um, and just experiences that people wouldn't be able to access uh, due to like monetary barriers or racial barriers or se um, like sexual barriers, things like that. Um, so I guess the delta in the debate or the difference that we sort of try to prove was that we can maintain the benefits of being online in opposition while still providing like the myriad of benefits of being in like a semi-real environment that is the metaverse to marginalized individuals, whether that's because of financial reasons or um race or whatever right talking about finding work and how that helps people get employed so i think that was the main gist of the case yeah i can talk a little bit about that too um before i talk about our case we were in kevin's room as well we were on we were the og to their ceo but i think there was like this really powerful part of the C their ceo case about identity about how it allows people to like explore parts of themselves that they literally can't in real life uh, and that's like beyond work but also like their personal identity so having like life-changing experiences like i don't know climbing mount everest i think was the example that crystal gave that you just can't do um in real life and i think that's like that i'm not doing it justice but it was very very powerful and i remember during crystal and kevin's speeches i was just nodding along and and i just I probably shouldn't have done it because I was their OG, but I just like I couldn't help but think like, wow, that's like actually a really smart way of thinking of like illustrating, thinking about it. Um, on OG, we were uh, one of the teams that Kevin was talking about that did this last year at Osdu Probs. So um, it was us on OG, and then How and Liz on CG. They also did it last year. Um, we actually remembered the case that they ran last year as their extension. So what happened in our prep time was we just thought to ourselves, okay, so we remember what happened last time. Let's just like try to completely turf burn How and Liz as much as we can and cover as much ground as possible. So we ended up running like, 
I know in my speech, I was super panicked just trying to get through things. I tried to cover their, the extension that they had run last year, but I also try, tried to cover a lot of like material um, about um, about how the metaverse can like detach from your social life and why that's really bad, how it breaches your privacy and how that how this can allow companies like Facebook to assert their control over your lives, which can be um, horrible in a political sense. Also, in a workplace sense when you're forced to work in an online environment and everything can be tracked um uh through that online environment that was basically the gist of our case what do you guys think about the closing government extension both um both kevin and uh jason and julian uh in like this our semifinals round yes. like specific yeah um I, okay, I felt like the impact on like data collection was just not very strong in the round because it wasn't very, I guess, quantified. Um, I guess it was just something that they talked about throughout the case. And I feel like if they actually give more illustrations as to why that would be dangerous, and rather than just saying, well, Facebook, like big bad company, it's going to like use your data to do bad things to you. I think that would have been more convincing, at least for me. Yeah, I was going to say from a third person perspective, there was like, I think the choice of running why this is like a moral harm like data collection is a moral harm was interesting because i think it is able to circumvent a lot of the flaws with the opening government case as it was in that i think og didn't do strong enough of a job of proving why data collection in and of itself is like such a massive monumental detrimental harm so i think there was illustrations that were like pretty strong within og um however i think there's a lot of like things that make this like immediately not that strong uh of a principle number one that it's like not not a comparative principle so like i don't think cg gave that significant of like tipping point analysis as to why this is like the threshold at which you're actually like doing like a moral harm insofar as like things like facebook and instagram and data collection still exist to a significant degree on their side second i think like proving the data collection or the right to your data is in and of itself like an a priori right that you ought to uphold regardless of whether or not you're able to sacrifice that was something that i thought was like very very hard to prove and too high of a burden for them to take on um i think there's also very intuitive reasons as to why you're able to consent on to things that make you do secondary trade-offs um which sort of like undercut the principle of cg right so like the example that comes to me which is obviously a very extreme example is like if i break a law i consent to the fact that if i get caught i i go to prison for x amount of time uh like 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 for for for, for breaking that law right even though in an ideal world where i'm given like optimum choice over the outcome of my decision i don't go to prison but the point there is like there are things that we're able to buy into that we buy into like with full agency that also make us consent to other aspects of those things. Um, and I think that probably applies for like the metaverse as well. And then I think the final thing, which I think Kevin did pretty effectively was that there's just like a, sh there's like a bunch of mitigation as to why, like you would actually get significant amounts of re uh, regulation in these world, uh, sorry, in this world, right. Uh, as to why, like this sort of just doesn't manifest in the way that sort of, uh, prop wants to characterize it does so yeah this is that's why I, I thought like the cg case while interesting was pretty effectively taken down uh, and I, I thought it was pretty clearly an ogco uh going through like like by the end of that round 
Alright, so there was just this huge spider who just popped up on my computer screen that scared me. But anyways, um, it's gone now, so I can safely speak my thoughts about the semi-round. So, I did this round, actually, Ozdu Finals as well. Uh, we actually won the round, and it was a really, like, it was a, it was a clear win, because I think I utilized a lot of illustration really well. Um, so I think we were on opposition. We ran first... There's like access. We ran uh, three arguments actually. First, there was access um, as to why people can have more access towards these kind of things that are very important. Um, and then we ran as to why we give people more individual fulfillment. And then lastly, we ran just like the societal potential of the metaverse. So like you can literally experience anything. You can experience what flying can feel. You can experience things like um, you can experience things that you otherwise would never have experienced. And there's so many possibilities, like societal applications of this. So the judges were really nodding during my speech over this part, but like something like you doing surgeries on people, it can actually feel real for someone um, instead of actually having to do that surgery because, um, because that means that you are now able to do so on this simulation or testing rockets with proper physics and how everything works um, for the people. So... That was another aspect of the arguments that we ran. Um, and then on the individual stuff, we actually like, I basically just tried to dump as much rhetoric as I could about why people lie in their deathbeds and they regret doing things. Uh, they regret their life. They regret um, not being able to do certain things, such as some people have the dream to go visit the tallest skyscraper in the world and they were never able to because they didn't have enough time. Or And then we also ran, it was really a bunch of jumbled analysis, tried to organize but not really well. Um, there's also analysis on like families and why um, families could uh, be together, even if they're apart in this increasingly globalized world. So yeah, we just kind of based all the stuff we talked about on rhetoric, which actually resulted in the next speaker calling me a good salesman for Mark Zuckerberg. But honestly, like I don't mind because yeah, that just showed the rhetoric was did work. I'm, I'm actually really curious for government teams. Like, is it is it is it a viable argument to just say that like the metaverse is just like a huge scam? Like people yeah, invest. That's what I was gonna say. That's literally what I was gonna say. Like, like yeah. Mark Zuckerberg just spent ten billion dollars trying to develop legs in the metaverse. Like that's a insane. <laughs> I know. No, because we kind of just assume that there's like some technology, like some chip that yeah. you surgically put into your brain that like suddenly just makes you connect to like this like immersive VR experience. When it's just like, I don't know if this is just a scam. Yeah. Like, Right. I thought by far the strongest gov claim was like that's what I was gonna ask. Just like I think the strongest gov claim is like the proliferation of the metaverse is a massive devotion of like time, money, and resources. That like like an absolutely absurd amount, like 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 a truly truly absurd amount. And if you know if you have any knowledge about like how the metaverse is being developed right now, you can use illustrations to point that out, right? Um, and I think that's that's like you can run the analysis about why that's functionally useless. Why you're trading off with a lot of other like more useful forms of investment um why it's unclear you actually gain a lot of the advantages of the metaverse uh like etc etc right so it's like it's this house supports the proliferation it's not like this house supports the existence of like a perfect metaverse right which is why i thought that becomes mm -hmm. more yeah i, I agree with that yeah. a, more of a argument that you can run because proliferation so it's like you you're you're supporting the creation like the creating of it or the expansion of it i don't know
Yeah, I'm not going to lie. The um, opportunity cost argument is actually pretty smart, and we didn't think of that, and I don't think our closing thought of that either. I think it's just because, like, debaters hate opportunity cost arguments in general. Um, usually those are the arguments that are the most true in the real world, but also the hardest to make it sound like they're the most true in the real world. So we kind of strayed away from that, right? Um, I don't know. Okay, let's go back for a second, right? So there was kind of, like, the... Um, our closing, which was Howe and Liz, um, they ran this data collection point, which I think was actually like, this is funny. Liz developed, uh, no, no, Liz, uh, Howe developed this as a principle in government whip. And I thought her like principle mechanization was like really, really good. And it actually got me really scared. So I was like, I don't know how much this is being credited at whip uh, with the fact that they're developing like a whole new principle, but it was actually super strong. But I guess on the other hand, uh, Crystal also did refute this quite well, just rhetorically speaking, uh, when she was just like, hey guys, like data collection's already pretty bad in the status quo. Like most companies have your data. There's not much you can really do about it. And I think that, I think that was like decently convincing to the point where like, I don't know, if it doesn't change too much, then it's, it's somewhat symmetric, right? So that doesn't matter. Um, as for like the generic open government case that we ran, we kind of said three things. So the first thing that we said was that it's likely that a lot of people opt into this because companies are going to want them to do that because that's what garners them the most profit, right? If they spend a lot of money on this, they're going to want a lot of people to use it. So they might make it addictive. They might offer incentives for people to join it, um, all that type of stuff. Uh, the second thing that was said was on individualized harms, how that's really bad and how that, for example, means that people don't socialize anymore, how it means that people treat online life as a proxy for real life. Uh, we ended up giving a lot of like intuition examples here. And the third thing was on societal harms. And I think Joseph being the judge in this round, he can kind of speak to how our case was slightly underdeveloped because we tried to turf burn so much. Um, I think we said broadly five things here. Um, the first was on data, which is unmecked, but I think it's still like a valid case to be ran, which is why closing took it. Uh, the second was on employers, right? So we say that this necessarily like exacerbates the, uh, the power imbalance between employers and employees uh, and the status quo, how they're kind of able to like see every move that you make, how this is even kind of being implemented in the status quo, how Amazon has like, I don't know, um, software that sees how much like truck drivers do. And if they don't meet a certain quota, they get fired instantly. So that's really harmful. Uh, I think the third was on governments and politics, how like they can use this to influence people to a degree that's like super pernicious. Uh, the fourth was on foreign actors, talking about like, for example, countries like China using this um, as a means of like surveillance. And then the fifth one was about the worst case scenario. So this is kind of the argument that Jason alluded to. Um, that how and Liz ran last time. And the argument kind of goes like, imagine what happens if like there's a glitch in the metaverse, right? Or imagine what happens when like one country is able to hack the metaverse of another country and how much harm that could do. Because given that this is like the disastrous scenario of the metaverse, and if we kind of peg everything in our real life onto the system, technology is all fallible, right? If it's all like possible to make it fail, then the time when it does fail, like the impacts are like massively bad. So I feel like you can kind of just weigh that up um, on a means of like likelihood versus scale of impact and just say that like if this does happen it's just like so terrible for the rest of the world that we ought never let the proliferation of this happen uh, so yeah that was kind of like a generic guff case so one other thing i want to add to what julian talked about how about how like people make this addicting or uh, the argumentation that people will want to go into the metaverse. The other argument as to why people will go into the metaverse, because we wanted people to go because um, our entire case was based on an interconnected world that operated off this, uh, was the analysis as to like how only reason metaverse works and like the only reason any social media works, which is what metaverse will be kind of the closest resemblance of the metaverse will be social media currently um, is because other people are on it. So companies have a direct incentive to make this kind of technology incredibly accessible. So they will want to subsidize it as much as possible. They want to make cheaper options of it as much as possible because if more people are able to hop onto the platform for free, um, such as 
what we see currently on Instagram or Facebook, then they can access further amounts of profit from that. Um, so that basically proved our accessibility argument as well. So yeah. I think some like I feel like for opening government, right? I actually really liked your point on people neglecting their real life, but I thought you could have taken that a lot further. Like instead of just saying that people play a lot more like virtual metaverse league, um, I, I'd imagine, for example, the example of uh, I don't know, a father coming home from like a nine to five job, really hating his wife and really hating like modern life, and then just going on the metaverse for like three hours straight, neglecting his kids and not actually taking care of his like financial situation. Um, I think of people just like neglecting their actual future university college courses uh, just to like be on this experience. Because I feel like our refutation to that was extremely mitigatory to the sense that we just talked about how, well, it's kind of your choice to determine what is actually real in your life. So if being online makes you feel real, then well, that is your personal choice. But if being online for too long means that your personal health will literally deteriorate to the point that you can't actually enjoy life anymore, then you can talk about how that's a net harm for your dependence or your yourself, right? Like physically. Um, I thought that that's where you could have taken that. I mean, that's actually like extremely smart and I'm kind of sad we didn't think of that. Um, I think me and Jason like kind of spent partial part of this around like memeing and making jokes. And it was also was kind of fun because I feel like this was the only motion. Well, maybe except the love motion, but those were the only two motions in this tournament that were that kind of allowed for you to be a bit more lighthearted and like you know poked more a bit more fun at like other cases but yeah that's definitely really smart analysis and you know you can see how like a bunch of people are wasting their lives on the internet and the status quo and if you create like a super immersive network then it just gets so much worse uh yeah cheers if you can go okay cool so i think a very small sector of you have heard anything about how the the decision was made on this motion and i'll try to be quick for kevin here so the mo the decision was made in a fairly funny way. So I had GovBench going through, um, Rena had closing going through, and Jalila had closing op going through with opening government. And we each had different gripes with each of the teams, and I'll briefly explain what they are. My gripe with closing opposition, even though I thought it was a round-winning case, and even though I thought you had pretty good mitigation towards the government side, I thought compared to the other teams, the extension was actually under-mechanized. So why exactly would you be able to um, would you be able to do this in a way that is meaningful? Why, like, what exactly could you be able to do in order to express your identity? It's kind of just presumed that I'm going to make the gaps between like the metaverse exists, therefore I will be able to express my identity. Exactly how? I think there were some examples that were given, but the actual things that I would do, like structurally, were I think uh, were not mechanized as well as they could have been. Um, and I and I and the reason why I weighed you guys under OG. Um, was or initially I, I agree with the final call that we made um, the reason why I weighed you guys under OG was because um, I thought that OG did enough to prove like uh, some some impacts towards their many many argument pronged case um, and the way reason I weighed you guys under CG was because I think I oh, I slightly overcredited or I, I missed a flaw in the closing government case about or not not in the case but I think that I actually understood or with like was able to derive a fair amount of impact of their case um, out of Howe's speech, out of uh, Liz's speech, and I I had a pretty clear conception of what they were arguing, which is basically that like the the ability for companies to force you into the metaverse um, through employment because this will be the primary vector of employment is uniquely pernicious and that's especially bad for people that otherwise would want to opt out. Um, I think the actual reason for why this would be exclusive to the metaverse and not um, a result even if the metaverse happened was the thing that I ultimately realized that they were lacking. So 
uh, if they had filled in that link, I would have had a much harder time deciding between CG and CO um, on that on, on that motion or on on that split. Uh, but I ultimately was convinced that they actually didn't have a reason for why that was actually exclusive. Um, and closing opposition's case was like kind of intuitive enough and impacted well enough that I can. But and it was like a lot of the premises weren't like challenged. It wasn't they weren't challenging how you could be like uh you can you can explore your like fam identity more um on the metaverse. Uh, so um for uh, under that vein, I, I wouldn't uh discredit CO or I wasn't not discredit, but I wouldn't undercredit CO for the impact they were actually able to achieve, given that it wasn't sufficiently called out by the other side. Um, and we ultimately came to that call. Um, with CO going through and OG going through because, well, Rena had a gripe with OG, with OG, like, really, really not impacting or, like, honestly even mechanizing a lot of the stuff because she, like, missed things in Julian's speech because you were going so fast. But um, I can talk about kind of the specific things that we had uh, gripes with. So the first thing with OG was on the employer stuff. This was also unclear why this would be exclusive, right? Like, the Amazon thing already happens. Like they already have the technology to monitor exactly what you're doing, the number of keystrokes, whatever. And a lot of companies already do this. Um, obviously, that's slightly interventionist, um, which is why I didn't I didn't see you guys as weak as um, Rena did. Um, but uh, I think that that's still a concern that you probably need to fill in. Secondly, on on the like your life will get worse the 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 co ref that they said was correct right that they were able to get away with explaining why this is not if this life is actually better why do you care about your your real life um it's not meaningful what the difference is so that was also under impacted um and then i think a few of the other like that some of the some of the impacts that ended up like convincing rena that you guys actually took it over cg is that like you solidly showed that like this the data collection um and the things that they could do with the data become significantly more pernicious when they have a lot better data of you, which means that they can sell it for more um, to like political campaigns or governments that would have more control to be able to change you. That was also under impacted, but a clear impact that you could also derive. Um, And uh, there was like the stuff that you said about like, what if it gets hacked? I think like the extent of this impacting was like, what if Russia hacks Ukraine? And the first phase issue is that this is like under, under impacted. Like what if they do hack Ukraine? I don't know what's going to happen. Like you presume that a lot of, there'd be like a lot of mayhem, but we don't know how it would be set up. Um, and especially given ops framing, it's like, like they were framing it such that this wouldn't be something that you're immersing all your life in. Um, whereas you guys try to advance that. And I think you do a reasonable job of explaining that. I think that, uh, also, the other issue with with uh, the other issue with that piece of content is what if they get what if they hack it? Um, is it's a little bit so this is uh this is not actually what I would um intervene in the round with, but just a question I have is like just because something can be hacked and it would go really wrong doesn't mean that it's necessarily not worth doing, right? Like, is it worth? Like if all the benefits that op says are true, then it actually just takes down your argument. Like think about our banking system. Think about like the internet. Think about like cell service. Like two of those things would be completely destroyed if there was a large solar flare. Like I I don't know why. Like I was surprised that none of you guys like gave the Rogers thing as an example for your side of the case, right? Like the, like the whole internet 
and all of Canada went down um, and it was like disaster for a whole day. People couldn't pay for anything. But would you elect to not have those things because it could be disastrous if it gets taken down? Like, no, probably not. Right. You would want to perceive the benefits for a large period of time and you can presumably actually fix it. It's not like it would go down forever is the other piece of content that I think could could have been said to easily refute that argument. So overall, there was like like a lot of the parts that you guys probably thought were the strongest part of your case was difficult to see how it was exclusive. And we ended up just summing up a few minor things that you guys probably went on in order to place you guys over CG, who um, it was difficult to see how exactly they would be exclusive, even if you buy uh, that their principle uh, was probably important and mattered. So that was kind of the call in that round. Did anyone have any questions on that? Okay, cool. Bless Jalila for having a good take. Otherwise, me and Rena probably would have debated OG and CO. And I think she would have convinced me that CO was better than OG, and then OG probably would have dropped unless we discussed the other split. So, uh, yeah, good to you guys. So, um, if no one has anything else on the semis, let's quickly go into the finals. Uh, the finals info slide is really long and complicated, but basically it's like, you know what, I'm actually just gonna, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase. So in a guilt society, you ask yourself and the and you make decisions based on how you feel whether or not your behavior is good and moral, fair or unfair. Whereas in a shame society, the ways that you make decisions is you ask yourself, how would people perceive me? Um, and how does that affect my decision? How would it affect my reputation? So that's the motion. And the, the sorry, that's the info slide. And then the motion was, this house prefers guilt society over shame society. Kevin, you want to go first? Okay, yeah. Um, I'm just going to actually take a second to think about this because I don't want to like misrepresent the arguments that we ran uh, because, you know, it's been a lot of rounds. Yeah. That's um, cool. Okay. So I think really the two main things that I think that were the crux of our case was first, um, I think necessarily on bandwagoning in society and why that upholds current societal norms and doesn't allow for progressive change. And secondly, it's just the, the relation of that towards our like current socio-political system of like mass incarceration and why reaching out for help for those locked into that system has become very difficult. Um, okay, so on to the first part about bandwagoning. So I think what Crystal talked about in her speech was that in a shame society, what ends up happening is that a lot of people tend to uphold the current societal norms by shaming, um, you know, a few individuals that are considered uh, to be outliers in that society um, into line, essentially to scare them into line, whether that's through like prison, whether that's through like cancel culture, things like that. So what that means is that in a shame society, um, it's extremely hard for any like outliers or whistleblowers to actually change societal fabric to change how people um, think society should be structured because there's very little reflection going on like self-reflection for those in power it's mostly just a large group of societal people shaming a few individuals into submission um so that's just really bad for progressive change i think that was our end impact there and that's just really bad for essentially for making our society more equitable the second part we talked about was in terms of just asking for help uh and relating that to sort of like mass incarceration and lack of rehab so obviously, I think mass incarceration is a major problem in our society. Um, I think we analyze that there's sort of like an incentive to overpunish currently in a shame society because of the aforementioned like bandwagoning. So in order to counteract that, it's important for people to like sort of self-reflect and also um, 
instead of shaming individuals who are already har like harmed, uh, rather trying to help them um, by sort of reflecting on how you as an individual can help those individuals that are like criminals or people who have done bad things in the past. So relating this to just people who have committed crimes or felonies, um, there's going to be more likely an incentive to have rehabilitation programs to reach out to criminals currently serving sentences uh, about how they can move forward with their lives instead of blindly punishing them and putting, uh, viewing them as people who are deviants in society. So the end impact of that is that it allows essentially more people to receive optimized sentences that will actually contribute to the greatest societal utility, whether that's you know giving people who actually deserve sentences sentences or try to help the people who are over-incarcerated or over-sentenced um, by giving them the resources they need to integrate back into society. Second half is talking about how like racist individuals and just people who have done wrongs in the past can now actually become better people when they're no longer viewed as deviants in society, right? People who are on the alt-right, like Proud Boys or something, don't feel that same sense of camaraderie when the greater society actually reaches out to them and to some extent, right, tries to talk about why they chose to make the comments, the decisions, the political views they have, instead of shaming them, which makes them closer with like the group of very extreme people they already have. So basically radicalization analysis. Um, so impact of that is just less radicalization in society, more conversation. Yeah, that was basically our case, I'd say. Okay, I can talk about our case. Um, our case was kind of two-pronged. The first was kind of less impact. We talked about how group ethics are usually good. I think this point's kind of intuitively true, right? Usually what people think is like the right thing to do, not on like a, sorry, like a pro progressivism sense, but just on like a morality sense. Like for example, you shouldn't kill people, you shouldn't rob people, things like that. We said that ethics is kind of just like a derivation of what people believe to be like the best thing to do. And insofar as people will like stray from that in the terms of like, I don't know, people will be serial killers, people will be rapists, that's usually bad, right? So a guilt society, or sorry, a shame society is usually the best for doing that. If we're able to shame people out of, um, for example, deferring from what we think the best Thing to do is as a group uh, if they defer from that group consensus then it usually leads to bad outcomes but the second and more important class in this debate was kind of like about who gets more progressive change right and there's this interesting uh, characterization in opening government where they say that the society we live in is actually a combination of guilt and shame societies right so i think this is pretty interesting uh what we said with this framing is that you don't really get change if one person just feels guilt after another person and that just like continues for the rest of humanity like you're probably going to get change on a really slow basis there right what we've said uh rather on our side of the house was that social movements operate on the basis of like one large group convincing people that what they did is like deserving of shame right that looks like for example people convincing uh friends or family members to like not be racist because that's just something that for example is seen as virtuous in the society that we live in so we think that that's kind of how we change harmful norms on our side of the house uh that was mainly our case i think jin can kind of speak to this more since he kind of just read like the better version of this uh but yeah i disagree i don't think we had the better version but we did run two extensions the first one on harm reduction basically trying to solve the whole dispute on racist, sexist, homophobic people, just bad people in general. How does the society help them better? Um, the argument here is that uh, some people cannot be changed, but there are lots of people out there who are racist and homophobic, but the reason why it is reduced and the reason why they don't say these kind of things is because they want to avoid shame. Um, so we need to recognize that humans are stubborn, it isn't just feasible to convince every racist to just not be racist and feel guilty about their what they think about, especially because a lot of them believe in what they're saying. So a lot of anti-Semitists do believe Jewish people are genuinely bad, and it is hard to change their perspective and make them feel guilt for something that they think is right. So we can reduce the amount of tangible harm upon people's lives, the amount of rhetoric that is said, the amount of uh, the 
the less willingness of people to support politicians and support people who do say these kinds of things. And it means that we can reduce the amount of tangible harm at the end of the day. And then there's a second mechanism under here, which was probably in retrospect a bit better, but also kind of bad because we ran inefficiency of guilt. So like guilt can be controlled. Um, I, I remember giving a really bad, funny joke, I guess, about my brother or something, but uh, I it was it was an argument basically about how you can control your guilt. You can tell yourself it was okay. You can tell you do something and makes you forget about the guilt you had. So it is difficult for guilt to actually be very efficient. Where shame is always there. You getting booed um, means that you are. Yeah. So Joseph thought the joke illustrated the point well. I appreciate it. Yeah. I I guess it did. Um. But like shame, you can't get away from because it is there. You can't move away from a crowd, um, people yelling at you. But then the argument here, the next extension was uh, why guilt just shits on your self-esteem. Sorry, uh, guilt um, destroys your self-esteem, which is kind of like it, it takes it takes down the second mechanism we talked about because this was really tense. I didn't think this through. I was a bit too nervous, but the argument was um, about why guilt society destroys your self-esteem. Because the guilt is based on a feeling terrible about yourself. And if you constantly sit feeling terrible about yourself, it means that in the entire society is based on feeling bad. And that's what governs your morals. Um, yeah, I should have said, even if. I was talking to Tanush about it uh, after the round. I probably should have said, even if you do, um, even if you don't even feel. You, yeah, even if you, you don't buy our characterization on how you can put away guilt and it actually works the way government wants it wants you to, it still has this really harmful downside. Yeah, yeah. So that that was that was what we should have done. But the, that was essentially our case. I feel like if we didn't um, if we didn't have that super big tension, we may have placed better. But I'm not too sure about that. Um, I think I can I can. I can talk about how I saw the motion in general because I realized that mid-speech there was a massive problem with our case and so like part of my explanation for why people are more likely to be convinced of genuine change on our side is because like is because of the way that we're socialized so on the side that supports uh, guilt society people are socialized from birth have a certain like moral conscience and they don't change that for like the rest of their life or whatever uh, or it's very difficult to change that in, in a guilt society. Whereas in a shame society, it, it's much easier to change that because it's more based on um, how your how society around you reacts on a constant basis, on, on an evolving basis. But the problem I realized with that is that all of them, like the whole motion just becomes very, very circular. And I realized this mid-speech when I was giving the explanation on how how shame society is more progressive. And I didn't know how to resolve it because it's hard to conceptualize why we would feel guilt on an individual basis if we weren't like shamed for or if we weren't socialized in a certain way um because of it when we were very like small or whatever so that part just confused me when like mid-speech which is why i got thrown off yeah that that was one of the things that played into the call so i'll tell you about how the call went unless if tanish wants to say something about the round first yeah no so i was gonna say i think the most like high level intuitive issue with this debate is the one that Julian just mentioned, which is like, um, there is a sort of circularness to how we derive our sense of guilt and like, and how our morals are defined in a way where we like guilt ourselves into doing things. 
and how we shame ourselves. But I, I was sort of thinking about this after the motion, and I think the way to break past this sort of for government is that I think in, in a guilt society where you're driven by your own conceptions of guilt, there probably still does exist like social morals, but those aren't the things that you hold yourself. So you can pick and choose sort of like the social morals that you want to, you know, ascribe to or, or, or things like that, right? So, so presumably this isn't a perfectly guilt-driven world. Obviously that can't be true or else guilt literally cannot exist uh, unless you just feel guilt about the most like innately human things like murder and stuff like that um and, and so like so, so so there's clearly things that would probably define what makes you feel guilty or, or, or what doesn't make you feel guilty um but those aren't as significant and those can be socially conditioned to some degree i actually don't think that's that much of a contradiction um but i think the way it played out within the debate which sort of made it a circular debate uh, on opening half as a consequence was like og says um like like uh, og says like oh guilt does x uh, and then and then oh, it was like no, no 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 like like shame actually causes guilt and then that's how we unlock this and, the, and then og says no, no no guilt is the reason why people feel shame and then like xyz and that becomes fully circular right and then that's why i think like cg's and co's material is sort of like deadlock breaking which i don't like to use that term but <laughs> to some degree it actually is um but yeah i don't know like uh and then i was also just like listening and i was just like yeah this this sort of just seems like a very hard to resolve thing sort of intuitively you have to give some good good uh, high, high level analysis yeah i think the high level analysis you would have been looking for on oo would have been an explanation as to why a group's um, set of morals are likely to be better than an individual's or why an individual's set of morals are likely to be better than a group's. I think OG actually tries to tackle this head on, um, whereas OO like kind of points out that it's important and then actually just doesn't do it, um, which was a big problem in the case. And uh, it influenced our call in the following way. So we had five judges. Um, the calls were the following. Um, one person, so I had CG and then OO, but I was actually convinced that CO probably took second. Um, uh, one other person had CG, then OO. One person had OO and then CG. One person had CG and then nobody else. And then Michael Warren had, uh, CO, uh, and then CG. So, um... The way that our discussion kind of kind of divulged is first we discussed if there's any chance that OO actually wins the round, and I think we reasonably concluded that given that they don't prove uh, one of the major cruxes of their case, and given that uh, a lot of what they said is probably less imp uh, important um, impact-wise compared to CG for sure and arguably CO, they have a really hard time taking it over any of those teams, um, and as a result, they probably don't win. And then we um, had a longer discussion actually about CO. So I think that C I think that in order to judge the CG CO split, you have to one evaluate the contradiction pretty carefully and clearly, um, and what parts are actually contradicted. And then secondly, you also have to figure out how much did CG actually prove that this was a result of guilt society rather than something that they're just claiming happens. Um, uh, and could happen, but isn't necessarily proven. And then thirdly, you have to talk, you have to think about how uh, how both the whips' responses engage with a lot of the uh, both the 
especially gov whips responses and also how um closing opposition's case implicitly clashes with with closing government's case and we came to a few conclusions one i think that there were disagreements mostly between um me and like anthony uh and uh, sorry me and anthony against uh, uh michael about how much the cg case was actually mecked i think that uh, me and anthony thought that it was reasonable and that it was good enough to show that like in a society in a guild society um reaching out for help is likely to be a lot easier and the structures of punishment are likely to be much more um much more forgiving and much more focused on rehabilitation uh, which we thought was proved reasonably well enough and also wasn't refuted well enough out of the other side whereas um the stuff about harm reduction was uh yeah the stuff about harm reduction was good and we ultimately had and ultimately credited that at the end of the day um, it was just, and we thought that the response, while was reasonable, um, doesn't actually explain why the extremism stuff and the radicalization stuff actually refuted the argument, right? Because the argument out of CO is that like you stop, um, you stop people from doing overtly like violent and racist things, right? And if CG's response is that you radicalize them, the question then is like they radicalize and then do what, right? So I think that that part was was not talked about to the end which makes it kind of ambiguous on who is winning on that point um and then on the guilt guilt like follows you around and really really makes you like suffer i think that michael credited this point uh a lot um uh, like fairly heavily in the round and actually actually clearly under like i literally didn't uh it wasn't clear on the conception of how that second piece of impacting uh interacts with the first half of the case until now and i probably would have thought it was a lot closer um if i realized that during the thing but michael realized that well no actually that that part is really important that part was pr probably difficult to weigh against people being able to reach out for help better rehabilitation and i thought that at the end of the day um the stuff on rehabilitation and uh and uh, being being more able to reach out and not being afraid to be an outlier, whereas an op you're really clearly afraid to be an outlier, probably weighed more heavily than what you're able to get out of the the bulk of the closing opposition case. So that's ultimately why we came to that call. Though I'm I'm reasonably convinced that CO probably takes second um, over o, uh, over um, over OO uh, after after that discussion. Though I think the rest of the panel was maybe not so convinced about that. Alrighty, thanks guys for that. I thought that was an excellent finals. I really enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed w judging it a lot too. And uh, yeah, sounds like we had a lot of motions with a lot of depth and sounds like you guys ran a lot of excellent cases on that too. So uh, what we are going to do now is we're going to wrap up. It's been a long, long podcast. I hope you guys had fun being on it. Anyone else you, or anyone you guys wanted to shout out, that is uh, an important person in the debate community. Any of your friends? A shout out to Sarah for being a wonderful partner, uh, even though she's not here right now. But yeah. Okay, I actually made a list for this because I didn't want to forget. I actually forgot some people during my final speech, but I think it was just like the people that we kind of hung out with uh, during rounds and after rounds. Uh, of course, Jessica and Stephanie from our school, uh, Evan and Leanna who were really close for making it to um, semis, but unfortunately didn't. And also uh, Raina and Andy from Wasp. So yeah, they're also good cool people. All right, cool. Um, I guess that's all we're getting for shout outs. Um, I hope everyone listening enjoyed. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing this and I hope to have you guys all back again next time. Thanks all for coming and I'll see you on the next episode of the BDT Podcast. This is your host, Joseph.
out.